Over the past uh, eight years, my parents have watched with excitement as ten grandchildren have been born into the family. As a new addition, almost every Christmas gathering, uh, it's exciting. What's especially peculiar about these ten grandchildren is that they are all boys. I'm not a mathematician. I think, though, the chances for that are something like one over a thousand. Of course, this this nothing compared to the, the family in Michigan earlier this year that welcomed the first daughter in the husband's family since 1885. Um, but when we announced that we were having a girl this year, many people talked about how long we waited uh, before having a girl. Eight years is, is really not that long. In the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to read about a baby that people awaited for thousands of years. The baby that we sung about here this morning, that we've worshipped together today. Today we're going to talk about awaiting for Christ's coming. And not just the, the long wait for his first coming, um, his birth, but also the wait that we are currently experiencing as we anticipate Christ's return. I really believe that this is perhaps one of the greatest things about Christmas, uh, that by reminding us of Jesus' first advent as a baby, we will be reminded to focus our attention on his second advent. That's what we want to do today. It's my hope that as a result of this sermon, you will walk away today with a fresh excitement, a a longing for that day when Jesus will come. The title of today's sermon is, What Are You Waiting For? What Are You Waiting For? And I realize there's, there might be a lot of different things that you're waiting for in life. Um, If you were to jot those down, what might they include? What, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a, a pay raise? Um, a best friend? Your team to finally make it to the playoffs? My son is currently waiting for his front tooth to get loose enough so he can, he can pull it out. What is at the top of your list of things that you're waiting for? Here's another question. What, what makes waiting so hard? I think one of the hardest parts about waiting is, <clears throat> excuse me, the uncertainty. Not knowing if something will ever actually happen, right? But what if you knew, what, what if you knew that what you were waiting for was guaranteed to happen? It was, it was destined to take place. How would that change your waiting? How would that impact your anticipation for that? I think for one, you probably wouldn't be as fearful uh, of building up excitement only to be disappointed. Um, You know, a child will wait with excitement for his dad to come home, but really he's oblivious to the reality of traffic delays and, I mean, even the possibility of a fatal accident or a change of plans. In contrast, Christ coming to earth was, was certain because God promised it would take place. And his second coming is just as certain. And so there's no fear of disappointment, only excitement. And before we jump into our passage in Luke chapter 2, um, I want to start by giving some background. What I'm going to try to do is, is kind of a brief survey of, of the long wait for Jesus' birth. The certain birth of Christ. Um, but a long wait nonetheless. 
<clears throat> I've included some references on your handout, some verses. I'm not going to read all of those, but you can follow along as I go. Our need for a Savior, a Messiah, actually goes all the way back to sin in the Garden of Eden. When the first two humans created by God, Adam and Eve, were tempted by the serpent, they rebelled against God, separating mankind from God and his presence. God cursed the earth, he cursed the serpent, but with the punishment also came a promise. One of Adam's descendants, his seed, his offspring, would one day bruise, crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, sing about it today. So from the very beginning, there's been this anticipation of a son, a baby that would be born, from um, a a son of Adam, who would be victorious over the tempter, who would reverse the curse and bring us back to God. Adam and Eve must have been really excited when God gave them a son, and then another son, and, and they're hopeful, but then they would soon be horrified to find out that not only were these boys unable to crush the serpent, one of them would crush his own brother killing him, falling to the temptation, the serpent, of the, of the serpent, just like his parents. And yet in his grace, God provided another son, Seth, to keep the hope of God's promise alive. Um, but the wait for the snake crusher continued. Mankind continued to hurt each other, to live in rebellion against God, to the point where God destroyed the earth with a flood, but saved humanity through one righteous man, Noah. Genesis 6 to 9 speaks of that. And yet, right after coming off the ark, Noah gets drunk. One of his sons responds wrongly and the wait for a a true savior, a Messiah, continues. In Genesis 12, we're introduced to another important Bible character who, like Adam and Eve, would receive promise of a son. God blesses Abram and explains, Abram explains that this blessing through his seed would impact all the nations of the world. Hopes are high. And yet Abram, his miracle son Isaac and his grandsons, they're, they're all deceitful. They lie just like the serpent in the garden. And the wait for the Messiah continues. In Exodus, Moses comes on the scene, chosen to be a deliverer of God's people. But he gives in to sinful anger more than once. He's not even allowed to enter the promised land. And at the end of his life, Moses points to um, someone better who is yet to come. He says in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, and yet also not like Moses, anyways, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. In Numbers 24, God reminded Israel of the coming Messiah through a prophecy of, of Balaam, a very unlikely prophet with an equally unlikely talking donkey. Balaam says that a star will come from Jacob, Abraham's grandson, and this child will be a ruler, crushing the head of God's enemies. Sound familiar? King David comes on the scene and he crushes, he, he cuts off the head of God's enemy, Goliath, the Philistine. God, David proves to be a man after God's own heart. He seems like Israel's savior, but he's not the perfect king. He's not the ultimate Messiah. He's, he's an immoral, murderous man. In 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, just like Adam and Eve um, and with Abraham, God promises David that the Messiah will come from his, his descendants, his offspring, And though his son, King Solomon, is incredibly wise, he's sinful like his father. Once again, the wait for a Messiah continues. You see this pattern? Children are born, hopes are high. Again and again, man falls to the tempter. 
And the wait continues. After the nation of Israel is taken captive because of their rebellion, the prophets continue to mention the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about this. He uh, receives a promise of a son, not his own. In Isaiah 7, Yahweh reveals for the first time that the Messiah's birth will be uniquely miraculous. He'll be born of a virgin. He'll be Emmanuel, God with us. Two chapters later in Isaiah 9, explains that the child will in fact be the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, whose kingly rule will be unending. Of course, Isaiah gives many more prophecies about the Messiah. Isaiah 11, 42, 53, as do author, other prophets. You have Micah. Micah goes as far as to tell us where the Messiah will be born. Jeremiah says that Israel has been practically chopped down to a stump, but the days are coming when Yahweh will raise up a shoot, a branch from that stump that will grow to be a wise and just and righteous king, a Messiah. Ezekiel speaks of the Messiah as the shepherd like David, and Daniel speaks of Messiah's glorious kingdom, his everlasting, invincible dominion. Here's just a few of the hundreds, literally hundreds of passages that point to the Messiah, the one who would come to crush the serpent and rule on the throne of David. And yet God's chosen people continue to live in opposition to God, suffer under oppression, The days continue to get darker. It also got quieter. God seemed silent for hundreds of years. And then one day, an angel comes to a teenage girl and announces that the time has come for God's promise to be fulfilled. She will have a son who will finally resist the tempter, crush the head of the serpent, rescue drowning souls, deliver God's people from bondage, shepherd them, reign as the wise and just king with dominion that will never end. And that brings us to Luke 2, where we find two of the very first people to meet this this promised baby boy. Two people who had been waiting and worshiping and praying for a lifetime like many who had come before. Now, we've already read Luke 2, verses 25 through 38, and a few other verses there um, in our service earlier, so we're, um, with the rest of the time, what I'd like to do is just call our attention to a few lessons I think we can learn from Simeon and Anna as those who were waiting for Jesus coming, and then see what application can be made for us today as we eagerly await Jesus coming again. Let me pause now and pray. Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, cause us to learn from his word today. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the promised one, the Messiah who came to set his people free. Son son of man came to seek and save those who are lost, and we were lost, um, but we've been found. We were blind, but now we see. And I pray that this morning you would open our eyes to see afresh and anew the the need for us to continue to await your appearing, to yearn for your, your son's coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to walk through this passage and, and talk first, about, first of all about um, uh, what, what they were like, uh, what Simeon and Anna were like, and then, then we'll talk a bit about what they were waiting for. What Simeon and Anna were like. If you look down at verse 25, you'll see that 
the verse simply says there was a man um, in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. It's kind of interesting. The Bible doesn't include any other details about Simeon's family, which was very important to uh, the Jews, or what he did for work, or he was married to, or if he had kids. All we know of this man is, is that he is righteous and devout. I think what's significant here is that someone, here, here's someone who is waiting for Christ's coming. Um, he's living in a way that, that honors him. Um, I'd say if, if you're not living for God, then you're not really anticipating his return. Um, this is the quality, a quality of those who are truly waiting for Jesus. It was true of Zechariah and Elizabeth earlier um, in, the, in the chapter, a chapter earlier. Luke had said that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Devout um, has this idea of being reverent towards God, and we'll see that is true about Anna as well later in the passage. So what were they like? What was Simeon and Anna like? First of all, those who are waiting for Christ's coming are, are righteous, they're devout. They obey his commandments out of reverence for him, so they aren't fearful of his return. Uh, just like a kid that has no fear of a parent returning home, actually looking forward to their return because um, that child has been doing what is right, Simeon was righteous and devout, fearing God, but not fearing the coming of Christ, looking forward to him. He's righteous and devout. Number two, he's led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, The passage says that Simeon was led by the Holy Spirit, but if you look down at verse 25, um, verse 26, also verse 27, you'll see the Holy Spirit all over there. Holy Spirit is upon Simeon. Holy Spirit is revealing to Simeon and leading Simeon. In fact, if you look back through Luke 1 and 2, Mary conceives from the Holy Spirit and gives birth to Jesus. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies about his son who would, who would point people to Jesus. A person who is waiting for Christ's coming is someone who is being led by the Spirit. And that makes total sense because John fifteen twenty six, Jesus would say, when the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, of Jesus. So here in Luke 2, even before the Holy Spirit came to, to, to dwell within Jesus' followers, Simeon was, was led by the Holy Spirit up to the temple to wait for Christ's coming. That is what the Spirit does. If you have God's Spirit inside you as a follower of Christ, you will look forward to Christ's coming because the Spirit testifies of Christ. To say it another way, if you're not anticipating the coming of Christ, we're not walking in the Spirit, or at least we're ignoring an important reality that the Holy Spirit is is pointing to. Simeon was righteous and devout. Number two, he was he was led by the Spirit. That's characteristic of someone who's anticipating the coming of Christ. And then thirdly, he was rooted in God's promises. Simeon was rooted in God's promises. Now, Simeon had this unique revelation, it says in verse 26, that the Holy Spirit had showed him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. Verse 29 says that, shows that he was confident in the promise of, of God. But beyond that, I want to draw your attention to the blessing that he pronounces in verses 30 to 32. Because I, I think it shows that Simeon, he was rooted in 
God's promises in his word. He, he was so familiar with God's promises that he spoke them in his prayer of blessing. Simeon knew his Bible, his version of the Bible, the Old Testament, what you have in your hand today, that part of your Bible. In his blessing, Simeon is quoting a few different passages in Isaiah and the Psalms, thanking God that God has kept his promises that he spoke thousands of years before. He says, For my eye has seen your salvation, he's quoting Isaiah 52.10, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, Psalm 98, verse 2, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42.6, 49.6, and for glory to your people, Israel, quoting Isaiah 45.25. Simeon knew that through this baby boy, the promises that were made to Adam and to Abraham and to David, and to Isaiah, would be fulfilled. I realize none of us can claim the type of personal revelation that uh, Simeon had about seeing Christ before we die. That'd be nice. Um, but we, all of us have no less certainty about Christ's coming. Because just like him, we have the promises of God written in his word that Jesus is coming again. And we'll, talk, we'll talk more about, about those promises later. Simeon was rooted in God's ancient Bible promises, as are any of God's people who are eagerly and confidently waiting the coming of Christ. As the passage continues, uh, we're introduced to a second character who's, who's similar in many ways to Simeon. I realize I'm skipping over certain verses. We're focusing here on qualities of a person who is waiting for the coming of Christ. One of the qualities that seems to stand out about both Simeon and Anna is that they're, how shall we say, advanced in years. Um, that's the Bible's words. No, right. If Simeon is talking about not seeing death until he sees Jesus I think the implication is that he's, he's probably nearing the end of his life. Don't know that for sure, but um, it's even more clear in Anna's case. I mean, here's a prophetess who is at, at least 84 years old. Uh, the wording, it may imply that she lived 84 years after her husband died, which would put her over 100 years old. Either way, she's been faithfully waiting for the coming of Christ for decades. Some of you know what that is like more than others. And the writer, Luke, draws attention to the length of their waiting, to the length of their life, on purpose. We see the same thing back in Luke 1. Luke describes Zechariah and Elizabeth as what? Advanced in years. These godly men and women have been waiting for Christ's coming for their entire life. We'll talk, talk more about this later, but if you fall into that category, if you're advanced in years, um, you're in good company when it comes to waiting for God. God chooses to use these elderly people as, as examples, especially to those young parents like Joseph and Mary uh, who marvel at their faith in God and, and the truth that they're saying about Christ and his coming. You know, I've mentioned this a few, um, those that are older in our congregation before, um, but we, we need you. Um, young people, consider this. We need those older people in our lives who remind us uh, that they've been serving Christ, waiting for his coming 
you know, more years than you've been alive. That, that, is, that is a faith-building testimony. See, not only were Simeon and Anna advanced in years, they, they were also active in worship, serving God. Waiting for Christ's coming wasn't just a lifelong endeavor. It was a daily activity. So next, we have, um, they were active in, in worship. Active in worship. Verse 37 says that Anna did not depart from the temple. She was worshiping with fasting night and day. This is like me talking to some of you who, who say, um, so, so some of you I know go to the gym and you're, you look like it too. You look great. And, and, and sometimes I'll say, it's like, it's like they never leave the gym. They're working out like night and day. Now, is that true? I hope not. <laughs> um, it probably doesn't mean that, that you're working out 24-7 any more than it probably meant that Anna was there like 24-7. She didn't leave the temple. Um, it does mean, though, she was active in worship. Someone who is waiting for Christ's coming is, is active in worship. I've seen people that get super excited talking about prophecy and end times, but they're not really living for God or active in spiritual disciplines. That's, that's just kind of a fascination with um, prophetic speculation. That, that's not truly anticipating Christ's coming. Show me someone who's, who's active in worshiping God, in their singing, and their reading, and their praying, and their serving, and I'll show you someone who is genuinely waiting for Jesus to come back. Active in worship. And then finally, verse 38 shows us that Anna was, was thankful, and she was evangelistic. <clears throat> Luke says that, that Anna came up at that very hour, when Jesus was there, what do you think? Led by the Spirit? And after seeing Jesus, she immediately began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Just like the shepherds in chapter 1, Anna's immediate response is to tell the good news. She's stopping anyone and everyone who would listen to her, saying, do you know who that baby is? It's the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. But just think about it. If humanity has been waiting for thousands of years for this baby who would bring redemption for those in bondage to sin, don't you think you would want to tell others about it? Then why don't we? For those truly waiting for the coming of Christ, for Simeon and Anna, as well as for all those on this side of the cross, Anticipating Christ's coming means that we will be thankful and we will be evangelistic, sharing the good news with others. We've talked some about um, now what Simeon and Anna were like as those waiting for Christ's coming. I think there's a lot of application there for us, but I want to take a few, more, a few minutes here now and focus in on, on what they were waiting for. What were Simeon and Anna waiting for? First of all, it says in verse 25 that, that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. What is that? What is consolation? Would you take your Bible with me and, and flip over to Isaiah 40 for a moment? Isaiah chapter 40. 
Now, you might be kind of surprised after all the the prophecies about the Messiah who would come to rule as a king, that Luke would choose this phrase, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. um, What is he referring to? Consolation has the idea of of comfort. Um, And we can see that in Isaiah 40. Let's read verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Israel would experience warfare and suffering and exile at the hand of their enemies, the Babylonians, because of their sins, their rebellion against God. In other words, he's highlighting here that their greatest need was actually that their, their iniquity be pardoned, their sin. And I can't help but think um, here of the nation of Israel that this day is once again torn by war um, and suffering. And yet their greatest need, like all of us, continues to be the need for forgiveness of sin. But how's that going to happen? How would Israel find comfort? How would they find forgiveness? Isaiah 40 continues. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Yahweh is going to come to his people in person and bring the comfort that they need. Then a few verses later, Isaiah describes God's arrival. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The consolation that Simeon is waiting for is the comfort that is provided by a strong ruler who will tenderly care for his people like a shepherd. Who's that? That's our Savior. And what is the appropriate response to consolation like that? Isaiah 49, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. We'll have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 52, 9. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Do you see? The, the coming of Christ brings comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. The consolation, the comfort that Simeon, Simeon waited for, the comfort that you can experience today is found the coming of Christ to earth to save us from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And we will not experience true peace and joy and comfort without Jesus because we will still be in exile, in bondage to sin. That brings us to the second thing that they were waiting for. They were waiting for consolation, for comfort. Secondly, they were waiting for redemption. You see that in verse 38. Anna sees Jesus and then goes to spread the word to others who, like herself, are what? They're waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Redemption has this idea of, of ransom or freeing someone from bondage, from slavery. So did Anna expect Jesus to free the Jews from Roman rule there in Jerusalem? I, I tend to think that these godly elderly people weren't that short-sighted. In Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 1, he talks about the horn of salvation. You guys remember that from last week in the Bible study we, we did? And this salvation is not just deliverance from physical enemies. In verse 77, Zechariah would say, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. In other words, our greatest need is salvation from bondage to sin. Our greatest enemy is sin and Satan. It's not a political regime or or government opposition. As the angel said to Mary and Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Salvation comes through Jesus, and that brings us to our final point. They were waiting for consolation and redemption, which they found in Jesus, because they were waiting for a person. Can you turn me, with me back to Luke chapter 2? We'll finish there. They were waiting for a person. Luke 2, verse 27. Simeon, speaking of Simeon, he came in the spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. I guess strangers scooping up a newborn in public place wasn't as odd as it would be today. And he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's looking at this eight-day-old baby when he praises God and says, I've seen your salvation. It's an important point that many people miss, I think. We're not waiting for the coming of Christ because of what he will come to do. We're waiting for a person, not an action, not an event. Let me put it this way. Why do you want Jesus to come to earth? Assuming you do. What, what are you looking forward to? You look down with me at your handout. Those verses on the back. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So what are you waiting for? Some of you are waiting for me to be done. I realize that. If you're here today and you've been waiting to bow to Jesus as your king, to trust in him as your savior, what are you waiting for? 
don't wait another day. What better time to come to Christ than in the season when he came to you? Emmanuel, God with us. If you're afraid of Jesus' return because you don't know if you're saved, uh, we, I'd love to talk, you, talk with you about that. What are you waiting for? Secondly, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, what are you truly waiting for? Are you, are you waiting for Christ's return? And what does it mean to wait for Christ's return? Let me see if I can sum up everything we've learned today from Luke 2 in one sentence. You ready? It's a long sentence. Here we go. Waiting for Christ's coming, waiting for Christ's coming is an everyday, lifelong, spirit-led, Bible-based, hope-filled, Christ-centered, peace-giving, joy-inducing, evangelistic, worshipful yearning of our hearts. Let me break that down just a little bit. I'll read it again. Waiting for Christ's coming is, it's every day, like Anna, who seemed like like she never left the temple. It's lifelong, whether you're eight or you're 84. It's spirit-led because God's spirit points us to his son. It's Bible-based. It's rooted in the promises of God's word. It's hope-filled because it's certain to take place. It's Christ-centered because we're waiting for a person, not just an event. It's peace-giving like Simeon, who's at rest because he had seen God's salvation. It's joy-inducing because the comfort of his coming brings joy. It's evangelistic. We're not supposed to keep Jesus to ourselves. It's worshipful. It's not just factual. It moves us to honor and serve God. And finally, it's a yearning of our hearts. As you think about biblical waiting, Maybe this is the only thing you take away from the sermon. As you see that word waiting, I encourage you to, to think of the word yearning. I think it captures really well um, the, the deep longing that we have for something. It's active. We're going to close um, the sermon by singing a song um, called The Yearning. I think captures some of the themes from this sermon. The words are there in your handout. They'll be up on the screen as well. Let me just read it though. There's a yearning. There's a yearning in hearts weighed down by ancient grief and centuries of sorrow. There's a yearning in hearts that in the darkness hide and in the shades of death abide. A yearning for tomorrow. There's a yearning for the promised one, the firstborn of creation. There's a yearning for the Lord who visited his own by his death for sin atoned to bring to us salvation. Next verse says, there is a yearning that fills the hearts of those who wait the the day of his appearing. There's a yearning when all our sorrows are erased and we shall see the one who placed within our hearts a yearning. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, within our hearts, a yearning. Thank you.